Good morning, church. My name is John Colvin. Uh, I have the pleasure of serving uh, in the student ministry here at Redeemer. Uh, And I am very excited to be with you this morning and to dig into this wonderful passage uh, of God's word. Being a a young parent, um, you end up really kind of getting into some of the same things that your kids are into. You just kind of adopt their language and some of the things that they're... um, watching and into, and so uh, the students make fun of me, like we were going to camp, and uh, I said, all right, hey, we, we gotta go, we have a long drive ahead of us, uh, let's make sure everybody goes potty, and they're like, potty, what are you talking about? Um, and so you just kind of pick up on those things, and uh, things that are going around in your house uh, with young kids. Um, one of the things that has been very popular in my home recently uh, is the film Monsters, Inc., that's a big one uh, for my daughter right now. Um, and I'm just gonna let you know, I'm gonna totally spoil Monsters, Inc. for you, okay? So if you haven't seen it yet, um, you can excuse yourself quietly. Um, but it's, it's a 20-year-old movie. It's, you, should, you should have seen it by now. Um, but in the film, Monsters, Inc., uh, there's this entire society of these monsters who uh, their entire power grid is supplied by the screams uh, and terror of young children. So these monsters will jump out from their closets and scare them, and the amount of screams that they're able to produce is converted into energy, um, which is terrifying. But they, they make it lighthearted, it's okay. Um, but, but one of, the, uh, one of the, the key themes of the film are, are these two characters that are trying to see who can be the scariest, who can, who can have the most, uh, who, or who can uh, produce the most energy. Throughout the story, as we watch, we, we see that um, the main characters meet this uh, little human girl who they actually strike up a friendship with her, and through their, their time together, they actually find out something surprising and unexpected that the better power source all along was actually children's laughter. It ended up being a much better source of power for their society. Laughter instead of cries. In the passage today, uh, we are going to see a similar unexpected uh, reversal of values and mindset. In the gospel of Christ, we have this new way of being human and it is quite strange and unexpected to the present evil age. See, in the beginning, God made man to have dominion over his creation and in in doing would actually bring glory to God in their dominion over the earth. But we know the story, mankind, instead of bringing glory to God, we we actually were deceived. We listened to the serpent and Adam and Eve reached out to grab for power and dominion themselves apart from God's plan and plunged all of creation into sin and death and fallenness. Because of that, our idea of dominion over the earth uh, is bleak. Mankind now suffers under sin and death. We suffer uh, under natural disasters. But God has not left humanity without a promise, without hope. He promises Eve, 
He says, listen, your, uh, there will be one that comes from you, one of your seed who will crush the head of the serpent, who will crush sin and death. And as we read the rest of the Old Testament, what we should be seeing is with each new story, we should be saying, is this it? Is he the one? Is this the seed of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent? With each story that we find in the Old Testament, we will again and again be disappointed. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that uh, humans are making the same mistake that Adam and Eve did in the garden over and over. In the Tower of Babel, they say, we will go and make a name for ourselves. Instead of making God's name great, they go out to grasp what is not theirs. We see this in the story of Israel's uh, uh, um, uh, life, the life of God's people. No matter how many laws God gives them, they continue to walk away from him. So we begin to think, where is the seed? What is this promise of God? All of this until God, quite strangely, unexpectedly, answers the problem of sin and dominion through a poor Jewish boy born to a young mother. And there's more to this young boy that meets the eye. And that is who we will talk about today. Pray with me. Lord, you are good. Lord, we come to you as people who are in need of restoration. We see creation and its need for restoration. And Lord, we have been scratching and crawling, Lord, for importance and dominion. And yet, Lord, you have shown us a new way. Reveal that to us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So as Lee read, we, we are in the book of Philippians. Um, the, the book of Philippians is a, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Um, Paul is most likely in prison in either Ephesus or Rome at this time when he writes this. And Philippi is, is a very Roman uh, city. They have a, lo- a, a strong Roman influence. If we look at Acts 16, we can see where Paul plants the church in Philippi. Paul and Silas meet this woman named Lydia, who is most likely a Gentile uh, convert to Judaism. And she hears about this Messiah who has come back from the dead through Paul. She accepts Christ and actually the, the first church in all of Europe is most likely hosted in Lydia's home. We know that she is wealthy. She um, makes these fine uh, dyes for uh, linens. We also see that while Paul and Silas are in Philippi, there's this uh, demon-possessed servant girl who follows them around and is calling out to them. And it says that Paul gets greatly annoyed after a few days. It's like, man, really, it took you a few days? Uh, that he finally turns around and casts the demon out of her, uh, which does not sit well with her, uh, with, with the men who have enslaved her. 
because they were making lots of money off of her being able to tell fortunes through this spirit. And so they take Paul and Silas and they throw them in jail. While in jail, they're praise God. If you know the story of the Philippian jailer, they're praising God in the middle of the night and God sends an earthquake and breaks open the, the jail and they're freed. And the, the, the jailer is so scared that he's lost his prisoners that he gets ready to, to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 we're, we're all still here. Don't harm yourself. And there leads him to trust in Christ. It says, then he goes to his house and the rest of his family and himself all get baptized and believe in the Lord Jesus. And this is the beginning of the church in Philippi. Paul writes this letter to them um, for kind of four reasons. Uh, First, he wants to thank the Philippians uh, for providing for his needs. At this time, jails did not provide food for prisoners, so they had to have family uh, or someone else bring them food. So they most likely were supplying him with his daily needs. He also wanted to reassure them that the gospel has not stopped advancing just because he is in jail. Actually, uh, in, in chapter one, he talks about how all the more Christ is preached and he can have joy in that. Which brings us to the third emphasis of the letter is rejoicing, even in pain, rejoicing even when he is in prison because the gospel is at work. And then lastly, in this part, this is, this is a theme that we'll see in our passage today, that he calls the church to pursue unity. So let's uh, look at this. I think there are three things that we will see in this passage. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. So first we'll see uh, humility is others focused. Humility is others focused. We'll also see that humility is only through union with Christ. And lastly, that Christ is the standard for humility. Let's jump in at verse one. I'll read the first few verses there. Chapter two of Philippians. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul's main commandment in this passage is actually gonna come in verse five, which is gonna kind of tie this section with the, uh, the second section together. But what Paul here is, is saying is he's pleading with the church. He's asking them, he's saying, listen, if you have any sort of affection for each other, if there's any sort of unity, if you, if you love each other at all, then please complete my joy. By doing what? By being committed to the same things, being unified. Despite where you might disagree, be unified in the spirit. And this will complete my joy, Paul says. He says to have the same purpose, the same goal, and unity and spirit in the church. He says the opposite of having this, he describes this as having selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is the spirit 
of rivalry that we have over others, of our way over everyone else's way. Conceit is the idea that we truly are better than other people. But Paul says, instead of this, seek humility. Seek the importance of others. Instead of thinking of yourself as the most important, consider the other person very, or consider the other person more important, which is very countercultural in his day as well as in our own. And I think if I were to ask us, uh, hey, you know, hey, do you you think you're important? I think most of us would be like, I'm I'm not really important. I'm just me. You know, there's nothing really special about me. Um, So we don't really think we're important. Um, But I, I think there is this underlying idea that we actually do take ourselves more importantly than others. And I think there are some different situations. These are some situations in my life that I think maybe we might all experience. Um, but it kind of reveals this. If we think, so, so uh, take, take this for example. Uh, I'm going to, this happens to me. Uh, I'm going to a meeting. I'm going to work. I, I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, all right, we, I don't even have a watch. Uh, I, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking at the time. I think I have some time to, to make, make it, to go get some coffee on the way, drive through, get some coffee, and make it to my meeting. Easy, right? Not a problem. So I go in, I order at the, the menu and I pull around and there's a car in front of me to get in their drink. It's like, okay, just one car. Great, easy peasy, we got it. Um, and I'm sitting there and uh, I continue to sit there and nothing happens. Like, what are they doing? And then finally the window opens from the, the coffee shop and they hand uh, not just one drink, but a tray of drinks, four drinks over to the person in the car. I'm like, oh, well, there you go, that's why. That's why it's taking so long, right? And then they take the tray of drinks, they put it down, and they don't move. All right, how many more drinks do you need, right? I'm sitting there, I'm waiting. Another tray of four drinks comes out. Like, man, how many drinks? And then I have to wait longer, and another one. In total, do the math for me here. What is that, 12 drinks? I'm like, man, this guy is buying coffee for the entire company. What is going on? How much caffeine does one person need? And in that moment, my thought process is this. If I'm late, that's gonna reflect badly on me and I'm not gonna be seen as as important as I really am. If it will look bad on me. And that's not acceptable because I'm important. Maybe we have the, uh, the experience when you're talking with someone are more like we're talking to someone. Um, they're, they're talking, they're saying something, and we are just thinking like, just, we're just waiting for the lips to stop moving so we can say what we wanna say, because it's, it's gonna be great. And I love how when that happens, and they end with a question, and you're like, huh, what? what? Oh, sorry. I was too busy thinking about what I wanted to say. Or maybe uh, for those of us who are, are more on the introverted scale, we, we, can, we can do this. Uh, we get home from a long day of work. We pull into the driveway. <sighs> it's just been a long day. I just want to get inside, do my thing, kick back, relax. I look over and there is my neighbor who always wants to talk my ear off. So I'm just going to look like I'm answering some emails in my car for a while. 
And uh, as soon as he runs inside to grab something, I'm like darting inside. Because my time is important. I can't be inconvenienced. Think about this as well. I, I think this is, this is kind of encapsulates all this. We all live with a certain level of stress. We all have very busy lives with lots of commitments, lots of things that buy for our time. And in so, in, in so doing, we, we, we are stressed people. We're stressed society. And what that causes us to do is think about ourselves and how stressed and complex my life is and all my relationships with my family, my coworkers, everything going on in my life. And yet we forget to look at each human being and see that each of them has just as much a complex life and stress as we do. Do we see that? Do we think of those things? I think often we talk about how we need to be gathering as the church. We need to show up to the gathering because it's good for us and that is true. But you have to, we have to remember that's, that coming to church is not just for ourselves. There are people sitting in the chairs next to you and around this room who need you here on Sundays. There are people here who need you to be here, to love on them, to pray for them, to just listen to them, to serve them. So maybe, what is a way that I can do this? Well, maybe we can just start by this, saying this prayer we can ask this of ourselves, but really, it, it is really a prayer. We say this, Lord, how can I place more importance on this human being in front of me than I place on myself? Lord, how can I place more importance on this person in front of me than I place on myself? And the next verse, Paul will actually tell us how this happens. In verse five, it's through humility, which is through union with Christ, says this, verse five, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This is the main command of the passage, to adopt this mindset that was in Christ Jesus. This is to structure your life after the life of Christ. This word here for uh, have the same attitude, some of your uh, translations might say have this mind among yourselves, have the same attitude. This is a word of understanding or orientation towards something. What is our approach to life? And this is a very concrete orientation towards life. This isn't just thinking things. This is a, a, a mindset, an orientation that gets us to do something for others. New Testament Scholar says this about this passage, the mind of Christ is the attitude that says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. Paul's solution to our slavery, to self-focused self-obsession uh, that is so prevalent in us is not some vague idea of just being better. It is the person of Jesus Christ himself. Maybe you haven't, uh, maybe you're not convinced or haven't bought into this whole Christianity thing, but you really like the idea of the ethics, right? Yeah, treat, you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. 
Treat others as more important than yourself. Those are good things. I just, I'm not so sure about kind of the religious side of, of that, the faith side of it. I like the morals. I want to be like that. Thing is with Christianity is that you, we are convinced of this. We cannot have the life of Christ without having Christ himself. We need to have the very person of Christ. We can achieve this other focused life no other way than with our very union with Christ and having his mindset. This is what Jesus himself says in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. For us to bear fruit in this other focused life requires us to be in Christ, to have the mind of Christ, which is given us. But what does this look like? What is the mind of Christ? Paul will show us in this next section of this passage. And this is such a beautiful passage. One of the, the commentaries I was reading says like, this is such a beautiful poem of, of Christ and, and, and of his nature and who he is and what he's done. I don't even want to explain it because it's just so glorious. We can just read it and then worship. Well, let's start in verse five as it flows into verse six. Here, Christ is shown as the standard for humility. Verse five, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. What we say when, we, when we're looking at this passage, what we're not saying is, hey, this is a good example of humility. Be like this example. Because that would mean there's this other idea of humility outside of Christ. No, what we're saying here is Jesus is the very archetype for humility. This is the supreme act of humility that every other act of humility needs to be judged off of, based off of. It says here that Jesus being in the form of God. This word here is showing the pre-existence of God the Son. This is one of the biggest distinctions in Christianity that we believe in God who is three persons and one nature or one essence. It means this, in, in, in philosophy, theology, essence, or nature means this, the basic necessity of a thing which makes it what it is. So let's, let's say you, know, you, get a, you have a cup of coffee, all right? You take all of the coffee bean out of that, anything that comes from the coffee bean out of that cup of coffee, what do you have left? You just have water. You've taken out the very necessity of what makes it coffee, because that is its essence. In the same way, Jesus is the very, has the very essence of God. It cannot, he cannot lose it. It is who he is. He is the preexistent eternal word. Or as John says in his gospel, he's the eternal word who became flesh. He was before creation. But notice this, he says that equality with God was not something to be exploited. The word here is grasped, the idea of, of seizing something, taking something. It wasn't used for himself. 
Um, third, fourth century theologian, John Chrysostom says, says it like this when he's reading this passage. He says, the tyrant fears to lay aside the purple robe in war while the king does it with much safety. Why so? Because he holds his power not as a matter of seizure. He did not refuse to lay it aside as one who had usurped it, but since he had it as his own by nature, since it could never be departed from him, he hid it. The early church fathers talk about this emptying of Christ, uh, this, this uh, not uh, grasping or exploiting his divinity as him hiding his divinity within himself. See, Jesus, by his very nature, was God, and yet he chose not to use it for his own advantage, not for himself, but to freely to serve us. Verse seven says that he is that he has emptied himself. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. Uh, I know that I think this is our our uh, family Sunday, right? So we have some of our our kids in here, correct? Can I see your hands? Where are you guys? Awesome. Hey, so here I got a question for you guys. Have you guys ever had a thing where your parents uh, tell you, or well, no, no, your parents don't tell you to do something. You, there's just a chore that you just choose to go and do by yourself, right? Without being told to do it. And you're like, yeah, that's awesome. Because I'm just doing it out of the sake of doing it and it's gonna be awesome, right? And as you start to do that chore, your parent walks in and says, oh, by the way, can you do those dishes? And you're like, oh, you ruined it. I was about to do it. It was gonna be so nice, but you ruined it. There's, there's a difference between doing something out of obligation and doing something of your own free will, right? Here we see that Jesus, of his own free will, steps down into humanity to serve us. There's this beautiful song that I'm gonna use through the rest of this passage that kind of extrapolates some of, of this passage and kind of gets into it poetically. I think just such a, such a beautiful, such beautiful lyrics. I'm gonna read these uh, throughout this passage. The song is called Lower Still by the band My Epic. It says this. Now when they laid that small baby where creatures come eat, like a meal for the swine, who have no clue that he is still holding together the world that they see. They don't know just how low he has to go, lower still. Jesus steps into humanity, not because of outside pressure or obligation, but his own free will. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I give it freely. He empties himself. Does emptying himself mean that he becomes less God? No. Uh, emptying here means that he's taking the form of a servant, taking the form of man. When Jesus was portrayed, uh, betrayed by, by Judas, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. If you look at the Old Testament law, uh, if a servant uh, is killed by someone else's uh, ox, then you owe the person 
uh, whose servant was killed. 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for the price of a slave. John says it this way, that the eternal word, which was with God and was God, became flesh of his own volition. He did this because so, so free, he, he freely chose to do so. And what love of God do we have in Christ Jesus? That the son, the eternal and equal with the father, son, creator of all, would take on the nature of man. And in that nature, a nature of a slave in order to save us. What great love we have been shown in Christ's incarnation. At this point in the text, we start to see this staircase down that Jesus begins to descend. All the rest of humanity, we are all climbing our way up, trying to prove our own importance. And as all humanity is on their way up, they pass Jesus on the way down. Where is he going? Jesus is showing us a new way. Verse eight, he says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The master of all becomes the servant of all. This is illustrated uh, best uh, in John where Jesus is uh, washing his disciples' feet. He literally takes off his clothes, puts on a servant's towel around his waist and washes the dirt and grime off of his disciples' feet, knowing that soon they will all betray him. One of them has already sold him. Jesus is this obedient servant who considers others more important than himself. But he doesn't stop there. He goes lower still. He becomes obedient. Obedient to a point of death. He loved us unto death. He was obedient to the Father and to his own love for us. But he doesn't stop there. Lower still. The point of crucifixion, we often think that crucifixion, that that is the most excruciating, painful death there is. I don't don't know if we really have a way to to prove that. Um, But at the time, crucifixion was not known. I mean, it was definitely painful. But it was, the point of crucifixion was humiliation. It wasn't just inflicting as much pain, it was inflicting as much humiliation as they could. It was so humiliating, they wouldn't even crucify, if you were a Roman citizen, you, would, you were not to be crucified. It was too shameful, too humiliating. And yet that is the death that the Son of God chose, one of humiliation. He chose love over pride and dignity. What love we have been shown. This next stanza in this song I was quoting says this. They beat in his face, tore the skin off his back, lower still, lower still. Strip off his clothes, make him crawl through the streets, lower still, lower still. 
Hang him like meat on a criminal's tree, lower still, lower still. Bury his corpse in the earth like a seed, lower still. How often do we who have no right to praise, to comfort, to dignity, we choose convenience over love. We have situations, maybe we have situations going through our mind in which we are orientated towards self. We have the mindset of self instead of the mindset of Christ that he displays for us. There's a symbol, an ancient Christian symbol. It was actually on our first slide. Um, it's called the Christian pelican. Um, and th this is an ancient Christian symbol that has been found in some very early uh, third, fourth century churches. Um, I believe even they found some of, some of the carvings in like catacombs of, of what's called the Christian pelican. Uh, many churches nowadays actually use it on their uh, communion tables. Early Christians believed that the pelican um, would actually pierce its own side with its beak and feed its young its own blood. And so it became a picture for them of Christ who fed his young with his own blood. In Dante, uh, Dante in, his, uh, in, in, Paradise, in his book Paradise, uh, he actually... Uh, says that Christ is our pelican, pierces himself to feed us. But the beautiful thing of the gospel is Jesus does not stay buried as a corpse in the ground. That's when we come to verse nine. He says, and this is just so glorious, this is so awesome. For this reason, Christ, a God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above Every name. Jesus is exalted. He is vindicated by God because of his humiliation. This means that all of creation, the early church fathers talked about this, how it wasn't just that mankind, that, that there were a few people watching Christ be crucified. It was actually all of creation watched God the Son be crucified and now all of creation sees that this crucified and humiliated man is actually the Lord of all. Here Jesus teaches us that the way to honor is actually through self-sacrifice. Thinking of others' interests above our own. This next stanza in the song, I think so beautifully, says this glorious truth of Christ. All creation is placed beneath him and death itself no longer reigns. It cannot keep the ones he gave himself to save. And as the universe shatters and the darkness dissolves, he alone will be honored. We will bathe in his splendor and all heads will bow lower still. There is only place beneath him. It says in verse 10, that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father. 
From the start of mankind, when God made us, we were made to have dominion over creation. Towards, for the glory of God, for glory of the Father. But each one of us has failed. Each one of us has sinned. We've, we've clawed and scratched our way tooth and nail to find significance and importance in this life. Little did we know that dominion that God made us for actually means costly sacrifice. And beyond that, we see this, that Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes sin and death on humanity's behalf. Your sins can be wiped clean, not based on your own good works, but based on this glorious fact that Jesus humbled himself and served you by dying on a cross. And now he is Lord of all and he calls you to follow him. God has accomplished what mankind has failed to do. And he's done this through the God-man, Jesus Christ. While all of us were scratching and clawing our way for significance and importance in this world, Jesus quietly came in and quietly dismantled the entire system. And now... He has the name above every name. And Paul responds in this way, worship. We are to respond in worship, to exalt Christ. I think there are four conclusions we can have from this passage. I think first, like I just said, I think we should just respond in worship to the Lord Jesus. Exalt Christ. Exalt him as Lord. And it is very good that he is Lord. I think second, we can ask this prayer of the Lord, but also as, as the way that we can look at others, we could say, Lord, how can I place more significance on this person in front of me than I place on myself? This doesn't mean being a weak pushover. This doesn't mean uh, giving up everything because uh, it's good to just be this weak person that has nothing to bring to the table. no. It actually says, hey, if you do have privilege, if you have status, if you have skill, experience, possessions, God gave those to you as a gift and they are not for you. They're for the sake of others, regardless if they deserve it or not. But all of this is predicated on this, that we have union with Christ we cannot be selfless people aside for, without being in Christ to trust him, to have our sins forgiven, to follow him. We need union with Christ. We can ask, Lord, help me to see each person the way that you saw me. I think lastly, we need to acknowledge that for us to serve others the way Christ would have us, if we are in Christ and have the mind of Christ, will cost us. It will be costly. Cost Christ. Yet we have this hope. In the same way that Christ is exalted for his humiliation, his humility, God says, whatever you give up in this life, you will receive more in the life to come. And we can look forward to that.
We can pray now as we get ready for taking communion. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, you said to us to treat others as more important than ourselves, Lord. And you modeled that for us, Lord. You gave us the standard of humiliation, of self-sacrifice. And in so doing, Lord, you have wiped all our sins away and given us everything. Lord, help us to respond right now, Lord, in just worship and praise of your great name, that Jesus is Lord, He's Lord of all. Lord, help us to love others in our lives the way that you loved us. I pray this in his name, amen.